Hey, welcome back to First You Hustle, the podcast for students and budding creative professionals looking to put their expertise to use. This week, we're slowing things down a little bit. The topic is mindfulness and how it has affected our design thinking and also our design practice. You'll hear an edited version of a talk from David Gellis, the New York Times writer and author of books like Mindful Work. David has also been practicing meditation for over 15 years and has reported on business and profiled business leaders. His talk combines these two areas of his professional career, meditation and mindfulness, and its impact on employees. This topic is very much relevant to you as a job seeker or creative professional looking to launch into the world. Mindfulness and meditation are key components to bring a healthy, balanced mind to work and find creative solutions in the unknown. I suggest you also look through our archives and pair this episode with some from our past, like Unplugged Day, episode 25 from February 2019, which shows how removing yourself from the digital jungle can help to reset your batteries. Or episodes 12 and 13, our two-part series called The Self-Imposed Barriers from Spring of 2018, shows how oneself can be the biggest obstacle moving forward with creative projects. An illustration instructor shows how it manifests as a barrier to creativeness and productivity in part one, and then in part two, our Director of Counseling and Wellness Center describes why it happens and how to overcome it. These topics on mindfulness and wellness are keys to being successful. These are building blocks in helping you reach your goals. Those past programs I mentioned are much about self and internal mechanisms. And David's talk connects some of those tenets to the broader picture, how mindfulness is being utilized in design itself or being used to help teams be creative and productive. As a programming note, this version of David's talk is a 30-minute edit of a talk that was actually more than an hour long. David was invited to campus to speak to the public as part of CCAD President's Lecture Series, and this program at CCAD brings professionals from many disciplines and backgrounds to campus, and they are free to the public, and many of them can be viewed online at youtube.com ccadedu, including soon David's full talk, and I encourage you to check it out. This edit of the talk focuses more on the practical applications and real examples of mindful work. For the full background and history, I highly suggest checking out David's talk, Again, on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash ccadedu. And check your local library or local bookseller for Mindful Work, his book. As this being a talk from the President's Lecture Series at CCAD, we'll begin the program with CCAD's president, Dr. Melanie Korn, and her opening remarks. David is the corner office columnist and a business and retail reporter for the New York Times. Before joining the Times in 2013, he spent five years with the Financial Times where he covered tech, media, and mergers and acquisitions in San Francisco and New York. In 2011, he conducted an exclusive jailhouse interview with Bernie Madoff, shedding new light on the $65 billion Ponzi scheme. But what isn't front and center in his journalist bio is the fact that he's a graduate of Antioch College right here in Ohio, where he majored in Buddhist studies and, in fact, has been a lifelong meditator since his college days in Yellow Springs. David combined his business reporting acumen with 15 years of meditation practice in his 2015 book, Mindful Work, How Meditation is Changing Business from the Inside Out. I first met David in August of 2017 when he came here to cover the Columbus retail scene for the New York Times. Shortly after, I picked up his book, which detailed how corporations like General Mills and Google and many others are using mindfulness and meditation practices to increase productivity, improve safety, and create a more supportive corporate culture. I read David's book at a poignant time for me here at CCAD. My senior team and I were in the midst of a series of conversations about growing anxiety, stress, and depression amongst college students, and how, as administrators, we could better serve our student body. 
We'd read the Gene Twang article, have smartphones, have smartphones destroyed a generation? Uh, and that was in the September issue of The Atlantic. And we realized that we have some major challenges facing us here at CCAD, as well as in the larger landscape of higher education. Studies show that Gen Z, or iGen, as Twang calls this generation immediately after the millennials, are much more psychologically vulnerable than previous generations. Rates of depression and anxiety have skyrocketed, and in Twang's article, she says that we are actually on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades. She connects this to the ever-presence of smartphones and social media, but also to the fact that children today are dealing with unheard of pressures at a very young age, whether that's active shooter drills in grade school or living the overscheduled life expected of even middle schoolers who want to have any hope of going on to college. They, of course, are doing all this while Gen Xers, like me, were watching Saturday morning cartoons, and the only thing we were stressing out about was whether or not we had the newest pair of Jordache jeans. So anyway, no matter your generation, stress is real. And for our students, it only increases when they come to college. CCAD is competitive, and our curriculum is rigorous. And our students are constantly not only competing with one another to be the best, but are competing with themselves to become better artists and better designers. So when I read David's book and his accounts of how business titans like Steve Jobs and politicians like Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan use mindfulness and meditation to counter the stresses in their own lives, something hit me. We can't solve all the world's problems, but we can equip our CCAD community, our students, staff, faculty, with the tools to make it easier to encounter the challenges presented to us, both in navigating life, but also in the creation of art and design. The rigor and competition of a place like CCAD isn't a bad thing, but it's become clear that we need to do more to provide students with tools to manage the stress that that causes. But mindfulness is not just about dealing with stress and anxiety. It's actually crucial to the creative process. And I know that David will have much more to say about that in a few minutes. So here at CCAD, we are embarking on a journey of something that we've been referring to for the moment as healthy creativity. We're exploring how healthy practices can spur our creative excellence. And our goal with healthy creativity is not only to help our students, but to spur also a local and national conversation that changes the way artists are perceived and treated. We want to rewrite the script from one that celebrates stressful all-night work sessions, committing to too many low-paying gigs at a time, binging on coffee and sleeping in the studio, to a modern-day version of the artist and designer equipped to handle stress and creative challenges in a mindful way. The creative who understands how healthy habits and a commitment to one's own wellness will actually make them a better creative. In short, society thrives, our creative communities and economies thrive when our artists and designers thrive. And when they make healthy decisions and handle stress, stress in healthy ways. And that's why, as part of today's events, I'm pleased to share that CCAD is launching a pilot program of mindfulness-based stress reduction, which you'll learn more about tonight, with local mindfulness expert Cecilia Shanahan. So it's my goal that students and graduates are not only incredible at their craft, but that they leave CCAD with an understanding of how to live a healthy and fulfilling life of creative excellence. And so now, with that, I will turn it over to David, who just informed me that this is a new talk. Uh, so you all get to hear this for the first time. So thank you, David. Um, it's been great to have you here all day, uh, and I look forward to your words tonight. Thanks. Saturday, June 6th. 
1981. It was a steamy day in Boston, and at the Park Plaza Hotel, just off the Commons, an enormous crowd had gathered in a high-ceilinged ballroom. They were stirring under the chandeliers, waiting for a man that they revered as a visionary. These were early devotees of the personal computer, techies at the vanguard of a revolution that would upend soon the way we all live and work. And the guest of honor on this day was none other than Steve Jobs. Just 26 years old at the time, Jobs had rocketed to international fame in recent months. Apple, the company he had co-founded, was just gone public. He was already worth $250 million. And the flagship product, the Apple III, was already starting to revolutionize the way people interfaced with computers. He was in Boston to address this festival, Apple Fest. And the organizers of the event that day had taken him to lunch. Afterwards, they made their way back to the hotel where Jobs was planning to address the crowd. As they were on the way to the stage, Steve Jobs asked for a moment. In a minute, he was gone. The organizers didn't quite see where he went, but after a moment, they realized that he had simply disappeared. They started looking for him. He wasn't in the green room. He wasn't waiting in the wings. He had about to abandon them. Their event was about to be a bust. Then they found him. After what seemed like an eternity, they spotted him sitting backstage, his legs crossed, facing the wall, his eyes closed. He was meditating. Steve Jobs had taken a moment to pause before he went on stage that day. And in that moment of meditation, in everything we know about Steve Jobs' practice, he was not visualizing a mandala or reciting a mantra. He was doing what he had been trained to do by his Zen Buddhist teachers back in California. He was simply paying close attention to his breath, to the sensations in his body. He was probably noticing the thoughts and emotions that were arising for him in his mind and his heart. And he was observing all this as non-judgmentally as he can, trying to come back to the present moment before he went on stage. That is, he was taking a moment to be mindful. Steve was one of the great designers of our generation, of course. He had beautiful, pure aesthetics. He had an intuitive sense of user design. And he had this ability to know what users wanted before they knew it themselves. People like to say he could see the future. Many of these qualities were innate, of course, the product of some unknowable combination of luck, education, and good taste. But he also cultivated many of these qualities through mindfulness and meditation. His ability to be calm and co concentrated, collected, in the midst of chaos was one of the things that made him such a great designer and such a great leader. His focus, insight, and creativity set him and Apple apart from the competition. And his vision, that ability to know what people were after, to see things that weren't yet here, 
that might not even have seemed possible, was a classic expression of beginner's mind. Steve Jobs was one of the first mainstream meditating CEOs in America as well. He was a disciple of the Zen Buddhist tradition and a keen student of Eastern philosophies. But he mostly practiced in isolation, studying intensely with his own teacher, sharing his beliefs with a few close friends, but rarely bringing meditation into the office. This was, after all, almost 40 years ago. Today, however, much has changed. These days, it can seem like mindfulness is everywhere. There is mindful meat, mindful finance, mindful leadership, mindful healthcare, mindful baking, mindful markets, and mindful gum. Just about anything you can think of has a mindful spin on it these days. What was a fringe moment in 1981 when Steve Jobs addressed Applefest is now an increasingly prominent part of the social culture turning up in business, governments, educational institutions like this one. And rather than practicing, say, Zen Buddhism, which is what Steve was most familiar with, many people are practicing a secular mindfulness, something that requires no orientation with religiosity whatsoever. Senior executives at Ford, Facebook, Google, Goldman Sachs, and more are bringing meditation into their executive meetings. You mentioned Tim Ryan, congressman from Ohio, practicing meditation on Capitol Hill and writing a book, A Mindful Nation. Corporate campuses these days often have meditation rooms in every building on campus. And Silicon Valley is swarming with meditating techies, continuing Steve Jobs' legacy. When I wrote my book, Mindful Work, I traveled across the country visiting companies, large and small, where executives and employees had brought meditation into the office in one way or another, letting it inform their personal lives, their interpersonal relationships, and sometimes even their work. And one of the companies that is doing this is the San Francisco-based design firm, IDEO. In a post on their website, IDEO elaborated on exactly how the firm, which has, again, a regular group of diligent meditators who are not at all shy about acknowledging the fact that this practice informs their awesome work, exactly how they go about doing that. And the very first part of it is adopting a beginner's mind. It's something that they acknowledge is a Buddhist practice, but they say that in the design context, it's the very first thing they do. When they approach a new challenge, when they get a new assignment, it's so easy, they know, to bring their own biases and baggage to the table. But this is the very moment that they have to stay open, that they have to be receptive to just about any possibility that might come up. The root of creativity, they said, is embracing the millions of possibilities at your fingertips. As the Zen teacher Suzuki Roshi said, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. So even though these are design experts, they try to forget just about everything they know. Instead, they start fresh, assuming nothing, and trying to live in the question. Quote, 
We see a lack of deep expertise in a new topic as an opportunity to get creative. Anyone can adopt a beginner's mindset, they say. All that's required is openness and creativity. And I, I wrote a story some years ago about how IDEO actually goes about new design challenges. And I embedded with them for almost a year. And it was amazing. And this was long before I had come across this work of theirs. In reflecting on that assignment, to just understand how palpable that was and the degree to which beginner's mind has really infused its way into the process. As we sat there, they tried just about every way to solve a problem other than the obvious one. Another tenet practiced by the folks at IDEO is something called radical acceptance. Now, this is a, a Buddhist term of art, frankly, that comes from a wonderful book by the author Tara Brach. And it, there's a risk in this term that when we think about radical acceptance, it, it not be misinterpreted as complacency. The sentiment is not that this is the way things are and there's nothing we can do about it. To the contrary, radical acceptance means acknowledging things as they are, yes. Understanding a problem from multiple perspectives, really understanding, internalizing what it is that is happening. And sometimes that means being willing to accept uncomfortable truths as well. And for the designers at IDEO, they say radical acceptance allows them to approach a design challenge with a realistic perspective. They don't overestimate what is possible. Instead, they accept things as they are, assess what they can and perhaps can't realistically change, and then go about making their best efforts. But they aren't deluded with unrealistic expectations, and they also don't fail to see the problem for precisely what it is. They're accepting things as they are. That is, they're accepting things non-judgmentally, just like that key word in John Kabat-Zinn's definition of mindfulness. A third tenet the folks at IDEO talk about being so important to their work is the foregoing of the ego. These are their words. The IDEO team realized the perils of always trying to be right. Instead, they actively worked to dismantle their egos, to get comfortable with being wrong, by creating what they call sacrificial concepts. When they're getting started on a project, they create prototypes that they know they will throw away. They do things that they know are wrong in the service of learning. It's their way of getting more comfortable with being wrong, with letting things go. And this notion of foregoing the ego is an important part of the design philosophy for a woman named Irene Au as well. Irene was a, an early employee at Google, responsible for many of the company's most important and influential design decisions, including things like the search results page. You've all been there. And she's also a longtime practitioner of mindfulness and was on the cover of Mindful Magazine, which I heartily recommend because, of course, there's a Mindful Magazine these days. <laughs> Discussing product development and that process of iteration, how do you build something that people are really going to use, Irene once said that a lack of focus when the product just isn't working comes from what she called deeper issues around ego. 
That is, she's seen time and again the degree to which people don't let go of something for one reason or another. It might be because an early adopter was keen on the functionality, or because there might be a revenue opportunity in keeping this thing. Or maybe it's feature creep, where designers keep adding things just because they can. But in each case, Irene argues that the root cause of those problems is, in fact, ego. The antidote? Well, for Irene, it's meditation. She says, quote, mindfulness practices help people let go of their ego and deal with whatever is getting in the way of achieving that focus. Simplifying, that is, removing that unnecessary complexity, then becomes less an act of ruthless elimination, she says, and more an act of love and compassion for people who benefit from a clear, direct user experience. In other words, with the right perspective, one cultivated perhaps through meditation and mindfulness, it's possible to take a different view on the iterative design process. What from one way can look like sacrificing lots of hard work and you know, not being willing to let go of that thing that you had toiled away on can in fact become something of a gift. Uh, something that allows for an ultimately better experience for everyone who actually has to use this product rather than for the people who built it. And though the IDEO designers don't mention it on their list, I'd add one more important attribute to this thinking of how it is that design can influence, be influenced by mindfulness, and that's empathy. Mindfulness is often thought of as a solitary pursuit, meditating by ourselves, being alone with our own thoughts and emotions, trying to deal with our own crazy minds, it can be a very self-referential practice. But in its fullest expression, mindfulness is relational. It's about how we engage with the world, it's how we engage with other people, our friends, our colleagues, our strangers. And being mindful places us in a state of mind where we can receive whatever comes our way with compassion, curiosity, and joy. That's valuable for just about anyone, of course, but for designers, I would argue, who are literally shaping and building the world around us, that mindset can be unusually powerful. It might make, mean making small aesthetic choices, for example, that make the world more beautiful. When Irene traveled to Japan some years ago, she had an unpleasant realization as an American for her. These are guardrails in America. We're all probably familiar with them. It is pretty bleak urban design. But while she was in Kyoto walking, she noticed these. Same functionality, totally different experience. Empathy might mean making aesthetic choices like this to spark joy. And that also might mean designing more compassionately by anticipating the unforeseen needs of users. When Irene went to the train station in the same town, she noticed these little blue hooks on the end of the counter. And then she saw what they were used for. 
They were used so the elderly could hang their canes on them. And they weren't particularly beautiful, but they were functional. They were compassionate. This was ingenious, anticipatory design. And reflecting on the design choices she saw on that trip, she said, as designers, we try to build empathy by studying users, either in the field or in the lab. But she said, those endeavors are important and worthwhile, yet they are still analytic. We take notes, we code up the behaviors, and then we synthesize and analyze what we observed. True empathy, she said, goes beyond observation. It's about getting out of your head and feeling the experience of others in your bones. Now, I'd like to make one final point about mindfulness and design, and it has to do with screens, which we alluded to earlier. This is the best slide of the deck. How many people saw this picture? Last week, Jennifer Lopez reprised a version of her famous Grammy dress for a Versace fashion show. But look past J.Lo and what do you see? Absolutely everyone in the photograph is experiencing this extraordinary moment in fashion through their phones. Now we all know this is a problem. We wake up to notifications. We check our phones dozens, sometimes hundreds of times in the course of a day. We go to bed after a final scroll through Instagram. And I'm not saying all phones are bad, of course. I use mine plenty, probably too much. And there are even apps designed to cure us of our addiction. Apps designed to promote meditation, things like Calm, Insight Timer, Headspace. But how often do we think about this problematic relationship we have with our phones as a design problem? Well, these days, designers, of course, many of them are working with screens, designing the things in our pockets, websites or apps or games or the phones themselves. And so if you are going to bring a mindfulness perspective to your design work, and let's be honest, that might mean in the digital world, I want to offer in closing just a few basic design principles. Uh, and I've adapted these from the makers of Mindfulness Everywhere, a meditation app of all things. And the first is to value human attention. That is, recognize that all attention-based products impact our well-being in one way or another. We need to accept this and take responsibility. I'm not saying that the only apps we design should help kids learn algebra, but we do need to be mindful of the effect our work has in the world, whether that's working on screens or anywhere else. The second is to be honest, they say, about dark patterns. Too often, these online interfaces, games, social media, are designed to simply promote engagement for engagement's sake. It's about keeping the user with the product for as long as possible, no matter what they are doing. There's no concern for the user's well-being in that kind of a framework. And there's no end in sight. Instead, it's trickery. It's trying to take advantage of people, often for the sake of profit. So instead of trying to deceive users, Try to help them make responsible choices of their own. Next, communicate openly. That is, develop sustainable modes of communication between users and product designers. Make it easy for people to offer healthy feedback 
and be transparent and forthcoming about notifying users about what they need to know, relevant changes. Next, prioritize quality. Focus on producing and encouraging high-quality, distraction-free content. Again, this gets back to that first point, but I think it's worth reiterating. Make your content worthwhile. We only all have so many minutes in a day. Discourage addictive usage. Those endless scrolls, that incessant notification, those gamifications, it's, again, trickery at some level. Stop cultivating FOMO as a way to establish and maintain unhealthy addictions. And finally, provide exit points. Instead of promoting addiction, give users a calming experience by providing a sense of completion. Give them an easy way to transition away. These are just a few of the things that designers these days who are really engaged with mindfulness are realizing are integral to the actual work of being designers who allow these thoughts and traditions to inform their work. Now, it's hard to know what this guy, Steve Jobs, would have thought about where we are today. He knew better than anyone the power, the allure, the magic of our phones, but he also was keenly aware of their ability to be sources of addiction, things just as damaging as they were useful. What I think we can be sure of is that if he were here still, Steve Jobs would likely still be leaning on his meditation practice. For Jobs, like all the artists and designers I've talked about tonight, meditation and mindfulness served many purposes to him. It was a source of calm, a source of centeredness, a source of insight, it was also a tool he used to enhance his intuition, his creativity, and a method for seeing a world from different perspectives. As he told his biographer, Walter Isaacson, quote, if you just sit down and observe, you will see how restless your mind is. If you try to calm it, it only makes things worse. But over time, it does calm. And when it does, there's room to hear more subtle things. That's when your intuition starts to blossom and you start to see things more clearly and be in the present moment. Your mind slows down and you see a tremendous expanse. You see so much more than you could see before. Thank you very much. Thank you all. You're a great audience. Thanks again for listening. As a reminder, check out Unplugged Day, episode 25 from February 2019, and the Self-Imposed Barriers, part 1, episode 12 from March 2018, and part 2, episode 13 from April 2018, to continue hearing about wellness, mindfulness, and maintaining a sharp mind for a creative lifestyle. Take care, everyone. Our theme for the episode includes Jimmy H. Boogaloo by the Juanitos and Love Song Number 1 by Poddington Bear, Creative Commons license from the Free Music Archive.